Good morning, everyone. Great to be with you in your study guide. Let's turn over to page 46, and uh, then Romans, uh, we're going to be in Romans 1, verses 18 through 32. Uh, Primarily, we'll take a little excursion over to chapter 2 a little bit as well. But um, we want to uh, begin today, again, noting this little contrast which exists between uh, chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, uh, 16 and 17, rather, and then chapter 1, verse 18. Remember this thematic statement, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, even as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Uh, but, but notice that statement In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And Paul says, so I'm not ashamed of it, can't be ashamed of it, because of the next statement, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed. So the righteousness of God is revealed, the wrath of God is revealed. So we looked last week at how, beginning in chapter 1, verse 18, and going all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, Paul outlines why the wrath of God is justly falls upon humanity, both currently in its contemporary historical form and then ultimately in its eschatological form at the end of history when all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So the wrath of God is something which is a contemporary reality for the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all manner of ungodliness. And for others, they are storing up wrath for the day of judgment which is off in the future, right? So wrath has both a contemporary manifestation and a future manifestation. So we want to unpack some of that today. We want to just take a few minutes here at the outset and do what I've listed in your study guide here is something of an excursus on the wrath of God. It's one of those moments where we have to pause just a little bit and say, okay, what do we mean by the wrath of God? Wrath of God is not something that that gets a lot of press, doesn't get a lot of ink. It's not in a lot of contemporary songs that are written. Most contemporary worship songs are about the love of God, right? Don't find many written about the wrath of God because that's kind of depressing. (laughs) But we actually do sing, uh, of course, about the wrath of God was satisfied. Now, a few years back, that uh, Getty Stuart Town and him was going to be placed in the Methodist hymnal, and there was strong objections to that line, and they wanted to change the line from "The wrath of God is satisfied" to "The love of God was magnified." Right. So, and, and the Gettys, to their everlasting credit, refused to make the change, and they said no, they wouldn't grant permission for that to be changed. But, um, and I actually, and I'm sorry, but I don't know the ultimate outcome of the deal. I don't know whether it made the hymnal or not. Perhaps my Methodist friends can tell me. It was not included. There we are. All right. No great shock there. Okay. So um, uh, because we're uncomfortable, aren't we, with the wrath of God? Well, at least some people are. Those, those, who, those who aren't, maybe they're, they might be difficult to fellowship with. I mean, you might know some people who are like, I'm into the wrath of God, right? <laughs> they might not be the, the friendliest Christians to be hanging with. You know, you might want to get a better set of friends. I don't know. But on the other hand, what's interesting about it is that I find people who aren't even Christians, who are secularist or, or um, uh, any various forms of spirituality, have this kind of inbuilt desire for everlasting justice. I was in a conversation just a few days ago uh, with this waitress, and she, we got talking about 
certain violent tendencies in our culture. And, and uh, she said uh, she was um, a professing um, uh, atheist. And, and, I, and she said, that guy's going to hell. And I said, wait, wait a minute. I, I, I didn't think you believed in that. <laughs> and she said, well, for him, I do. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there's this there's this kind of innate sense, isn't there, of a need for holy retribution? At least for some people, never for us, but but for those guys, there is. So, what do we mean when we talk about the wrath of God? Notice here in verse eighteen, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And then, over in chapter 2, verse 3, Do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? All right. Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So there's eschatological wrath and judgment, uh, but Paul begins this discussion with historical judgment, the wrath of God being revealed in time, in history, among us. That's something which people don't give a lot of consideration to. They kind of confine it only to the last day. But it's something which is both. So what do we mean? What are we thinking about? Well, the wrath of God, first of all, we need to, whatever it is, whatever it is, is perfect because all of God's works are perfect. So one of the very first things that people want to say about the wrath of God is that this paints God in a very negative light, that God is a vengeful or vindictive God, that that God somehow, if we talk about the wrath of God, that we're somehow smudging or, or vandalizing the mercy of God. But we need to remember Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, where Moses teaches Israel to sing, His work is perfect and all his ways are just. So whatever the wrath of God is, whatever form or shape it takes, we need to be certain of this. Because it proceeds from God, it is perfect and it is just. And that's true even if it appears unjust to us. Let's remember in this regard, just at the outset, Isaiah 55, what God says there. For my ways are not what? your ways. Nor are my thoughts your thoughts. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. It is not surprising, it should not be any shock to us at all if when we consider an attribute of God or a work of God that it is against the grain of our assumptions about reality. That it cuts against the way in which we would approach it. We often are idol makers. We 
create idols. And basically what we do is we fashion gods in our image, the gods we like. I mean, basically, if the God you believe in hates the same people you hate, you can be sure that the God you're, you're, you're worshiping is not the living God and true God. He's the God of your own imagination. The God of the Bible cannot be controlled. The God of the Bible cannot be coerced. And the God of the Bible will not conform himself to us. He will conform us to himself. He becomes as we are, not to leave us as we are, but to bring us into conformity with who he is. So that's why he goes on to say in Isaiah 55, my ways aren't your ways, my thoughts aren't your thoughts. But then he says, now see, if he left it at that, that would just be a statement of reality and we would be forced to admit that's true, that's really true. And Lord, we don't understand and we can't know you and you're the, you're the unknowable and, 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 and all that. But, but then he says, but, but as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and water the earth, and furnish seed to the sower and bread to the eater and make it bear and sprout. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It won't come back to me empty. It will succeed in the matter for which I send it. So God's word comes to us. This, the word of the revelation of God comes to us. And it hits our hearts, the soil of our hearts. And like rain and snow, it begins to create a harvest in us of God's thoughts, of God's ways. And of course, this, in the old Puritan prayer, help us to think your thoughts after you. Help us to think your thoughts after you, to conform our thinking to your ways. What happens is, the, the more and more in which we dwell in the Scripture, and the Scripture comes to dwell in us, our, our, our passions, our emotions, our thinking, and so on, are redirected and conformed to the ways of Jesus. And, and, and that, is, that transformational moment or transformational process, really, is one of the things that Scripture is doing in our lives, the Word of God doing its work in us. This is one of those areas where we may feel very uncomfortable, but we need to understand that, first of all, God's wrath, whatever it is, is perfect. Now, this stands in contrast, of course, to typical ideas about wrath. It is, and here, let's talk about what it isn't, not the petulant, irritable, tempestuous, unpredictable, irrational, malicious, spiteful temper tantrum of a little desert deity that must be appeased to ward off his or her displeasure. That's virgin in the volcano stuff. Okay? <laughs> All right? Like you've got this little, little, little demon deity and, and that thing is going to roll the lava down on you unless you make the sacrifice. Right? So it's, uh, it's that kind of stuff. And, and that idea of God's wrath is completely false. That's not what Scripture has in view at all. What is it? Well, here I ventured a definition for you, all right? And uh, I'll, I'll, I'll just say this is where I can get to. It is God's steadfast and relentless resistance to evil in all of its forms and his perfectly just punishment of all wickedness that destroys the revelation of God in the world, both in his image bearers and in his spoken truth. So the first thing that we know about God's wrath is that God, because he is love, resists evil. Where he sees evil, he 
is not indifferent to it. He attacks evil. Secondly, where he sees evil actions, because God is just, he punishes sin and injustice. God is a just God. So it's important for us to note that it is not a temper tantrum. It is not God blowing up. It is not an outburst of anger in the sense that a human being might have such because they're having a bad day. It is not that at all. It is God beholding the high treason of humankind against his kindness and human attacks on other humans who are his image bearers and human attempts to distort his truth and turn it into a lie so that people are held in chains, it is against these things that God comes with vengeance. And rightly so. So John Stott puts it this way. The opposite of wrath is not love, but indifference and neutrality. And God is decidedly not neutral. Luke Timothy Johnson writes, it is the retribution that results, not at the whim of an angry despot, but as the necessary consequence of a self-distorted existence. In other words, when we refuse God and we, we mock his ways and we refuse his ways and we choose our own way, then this self-distortion has as a necessary consequence the wrath of God. So the, the one, the first quote from Stott, sort of has in view God's, if you will, active wrath. God is not indifferent. God cannot look upon a scene of terrible injustice and stand there, as it were, with his hands in his pockets and say, well, that's a great shame. There's nothing to be done about that. The other has in view what you might think of as uh, God's passive, God's passive wrath, if you will, where he simply allows people to have the full fruition of the choices they've made. And that is part of what's in view in Romans chapter 1. So we have a people who say, I demand my way, and this is what I'm choosing, and this is what I want. And in this self-distortion, it leads to particular ends, which God says, then you may have those. I will not prevent you from the full inheritance of your choices. I will hand you over to those things. You may, you, I, I, in other words, you want to go this way, I will grease the rails so that you may go fully headlong and at full speed into the, the logical conclusion of the direction you've chosen. What a frightening proposition that is, right? Okay. But the other is more God's active wrath where he brings people into judgment and that is characterized certainly by scenes of the end where all are gathered before the judgment seat of Christ. So that has to be borne in mind. So that's just a brief look at what we mean by the wrath of God. So let's get out of our heads this kind of idea of God having a temper tantrum or God having to, he's upset, he's cross, you must appease him. It is rather God's perfect justice which looks at evil and will not be neutral in the face of it, right? So, and God's active resistance to evil in all of its ways.
Now, that may not be utterly satisfying to you. I don't know, but it's a good start. And, 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 and you can certainly tease that out through various passages of Scripture which are available to us. Now, if you go over to page 48 now, over on the next page, let's kind of take this notion of God's wrath, both active and passive, both in history and eschatological at the end of history, and let's bear all of that in mind as we, as we look a little more deeply at Romans 1, 18 through 28. Now, in Romans 8, 1, 18 through 28, we have the reasons for the wrath of God being revealed. This is the wrath of God in history. So the first one is suppression of the truth. This is in chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Because, everybody say because. Because, all right, here's the cause. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven because. Here's the cause. That which is known about God is evident within them For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So here's the very first thing. They suppress the truth in verse 18. They take what is known about God within them and they press it down. They hold it down would be another way of putting that. Now, what's interesting here is that Paul says that all people have an internal recognition of God. An echo from Eden. But they do their best to put on the headphones that silence any sound that could penetrate their thinking of that voice within that says, I'm here, and I love you, and I'm calling you. And so even the most ardent atheist, even though he perhaps has, he or she has created as much static as possible to drown out the signal from that distant place, has, Paul says, within them an innate knowledge of God, which in order to walk away from him, they have to suppress. They have to actively hold down. This is the passage where Paul basically says that he's an atheist about atheism. He doesn't believe that there's really any such thing as an atheist, that an atheist is somebody who, knowing that there is God, suppresses that awareness, pushes it out of their consciousness. That is why C.S. Lewis wrote, an atheist cannot be too careful. Uh, Another fellow I knew when I was in college who was a professed atheist, I heard him one time say, thank God. And I said, you better be careful. Who are you talking to now? And so there's this, so Lewis said, an atheist cannot be too careful because there are evidences of God all around, and he's a tricky sort. He'll bring him into the circle of his divine love. So not only is there an internal recognition of God that some suppress, all people have an external witness to the reality of God as creator, but some silence the song. Okay, so look, verse 19, that which is known about God is evident within them, And then in verse 20, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been what? Clearly seen. How? Through what has been 
made. So there is a double witness to the reality of God. The first is within, in the conscience. The second is without, in creation. And both have to be, both witnesses, within and without, have to be wrestled to the ground, hog-tied and locked in the basement by people in order to deny the reality of who God is. In evangelism, we are looking to ping the internal reality and point to the external witness, both of which testify to the beauty and the sovereignty of God. What do, I, do you know what I mean by ping it? Send out a ping in radar. What happens when you, when, when you send out the ping? All right, it comes back. You, know, you sort of you go, okay, we found that. So what, what's happening in evangelism? When you're, when you're working in evangelism, it, it's often not much help to say to somebody, look at what the Bible says, right? Well, they may not be ready to look at what the Bible has to say, but there are internal matters in their soul and external witnesses in the beauty of the world which can testify to them. This is why art and music in particular are such powerful introductions to people to the reality of God whether it's a Rembrandt that somebody is looking at and going, look at the magnificence of that, or a starscape or a mountain range that they're walking through, a great ocean, a vast ocean that people encounter, or whether it's a music, whether it's Handel's water music or, or an a, a, a amazing uh, or Messiah or, or um, a, a great uh, piece that's a symphony that brings us to tears, and there, it, it appeals to something down inside of us. What happens, what's going on in us when we cry at a movie because the, the guy gets the girl? Why is it? Why is every single movie work that way? Boy meets girl, and they fall in love, and then, and then something happens to break them up, and then he has to do something to win her back, and then they all live happily ever after. Why is, and we, what do we do? Well, we cry, and then we, we, it's, a, it's a great date night because it always ends in a kiss, doesn't it? So that's a great, great night. Okay, what is it about that that's echoing down in our souls? Well, it's the story of the Bible, isn't it? It's the, whole, it's the story of redemption, and it's the basic story of the, the whole race, and so it resonates with who we are, resonates down in the depths of our being. All right, so one of the things we have to do is allow created beauty, whether it's God's creation or the handiwork of people, to testify to that which is beyond it. And that's one of the things that Paul's, Paul's recommending here. So what is it that they do? Well, they suppress the truth. Here's the second thing. They refuse to honor God as God, verses 21 and 22. Oh, oh, wait a minute. Oh, I went too fast. I apologize. I, gotta, I, 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 I said C.S. Lewis, and I forgot to bring that up. Um, my apologies. Um, I have, uh, I put in here in your notes, C.S. Lewis on natural law. So I want to read to you a little bit from Mere Christianity because I know most of you have heard of it but never read it. Okay, you could at least get it on Audible, okay, and walk, go for a walk with C.S. Lewis, all right? So I'm going to read you a little bit of Lewis on, on this issue of the, the internal consciousness uh, that is an awareness of something beyond us which is teaching us. And this is how 
mere Christianity begins. This is just at the beginning. Everyone has heard people quarreling. Sometimes it sounds funny and sometimes it sounds merely unpleasant, but however it sounds, I believe we can learn something very important from listening to the things they say. They say things like, how'd you like it if anyone did the same to you? That's not my seat. I was there first. Leave him alone. He isn't doing you any harm. Why should you shove in first? Give me a bit of your orange. I gave you a bit of mine. Come on, you promised. People say things like this every day, educated as well as uneducated, children as well as grown-ups. Now, what interests me about all these remarks is that the man who makes them is not merely saying that the other man's behavior does not happen to please him. He is appealing to some kind of standard of behavior which he expects the other man to know about. And the other man very seldom replies, to hell with your standard. Nearly always he tries to make out that which he has been doing does not really go against the standard, or that, if it does, there's some special excuse for why he's entitled to break it. It looks, in fact, very much as if both parties had in mind some kind of law or rule of fair play or decent behavior or morality or whatever you want to call it, about which they actually agree, and they have. If they had not, they might, of course, fight like animals, but they could not quarrel in the human sense of the word. Quarreling means trying to show that the other person is wrong. And there'd be no sense in trying to do that unless you and he had some sort of agreement as to what was right. Just as there would be no sense in saying that a footballer had committed a foul unless there was some agreement about the rules. Now, this law or rule about right and wrong used to be called the law of nature. Nowadays, when we talk about laws of nature, we usually mean things like gravity or heredity or chemistry. But when the older thinkers called the law of right and wrong the law of nature, what they really meant was the law of human nature. The idea was that just as all bodies are governed by the law of gravity and organisms by biological laws, so a creature called man also had his law with this great difference, that a body could not choose whether it obeyed the law of gravity or not, but a man could choose whether to obey the law of human nature or not. We may put it in another way. Each man is, at every moment, subjected to several different sets of law, but there is only one of these which he is free to disobey. As a body, he is subjected to gravitation and cannot disobey it. If you leave him unsupported in midair, he has no more choice about falling than a stone has. As an organism, he is subjected to various biological laws, which he cannot disobey any more than an animal can. That is, he cannot disobey these laws which he shares with other things. But the law which is peculiar to human nature, the law he does not share with vegetables, is the one he can disobey if he chooses. And this law was called the law of nature because people thought everyone knew it. What was the sense in saying an enemy were in the wrong unless right is a real thing, which the Nazis at the bottom knew just as well as we did and ought to have practiced? If they had no notion of what we mean by right, then, though we might still have had to fight them, we could no more have blamed them for that than the color of their hair. So what Lewis is arguing here at the outset of this remarkable book is that there is something in human nature of a law that is written into the conscience. And he will argue from the presence of that innate sense of right and wrong that all people possess to a lawgiver, that it is not merely something which is tribal or biological. Because, as he goes on to note, 
different impulses within our conscience sometimes compete. The law of self-preservation versus the law of love and sacrifice, and they're both present. And he says when we feel both and we don't know what to do, we sense an arbiter within our conscience telling us which way to lean. And he said, even if you conclude that those two impulses are merely biological, where did that arbiter, that referee come from, that coach saying choose that way? Because both could be equally valid in various circumstances. But in the moment where they're in conflict, there is a teacher inside of you saying, go that way. And Lewis says, who's that? And as an atheist, you see, a former, that's... That's what he couldn't figure out. That, at the end of the day, is what he could not any longer suppress. So here's the second thing they do. They refuse to honor God as God. Verse 21, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. The very first sign of a people who are moving away from God, Paul notes here, is that they refuse to honor God and give thanks. So a thankful heart is obviously one of the first signs of a person who's a true believer. An unthankful heart is a sign that we're moving away from God. We refuse to honor God as God. And then the result is professing to be wise, they became fools. And here's the third thing. They exchange God for an idol and they exchange truth for a lie. Verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Now notice that worship is something which always occurs. Humans are worshipers. But what they worship then is either some aspect of creation, the stars, a creature of some kind, other human images, but they do this in place of God. Worship is something which is who we are. We are worshipful creatures. We were created to worship. Who's Paul really talking about here? Well, in a certain sense, he's talking about everybody, but he's got at the backdrop, remember, a story. Because man in the Bible, the word man is just the word what? Adam. Hebrew, it's just Adam, human. And when when humankind is in sin, what is it that Adam and Eve do? Well, they exchange the glory of God and worship of God to submit to a creature. And they exchange the truth of God for a lie. Has God said? And so in this original account of the fall, we have everything that's going on here in this passage. The suppression of truth. The exchange of truth and glory. A submission to the creature rather than the creator. And the worship of something other than God himself. So this is a refusal to acknowledge God as God. Look at verse 28. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, 
God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. So there's a refusal to acknowledge God. Humans are worshiping people. We all worship. The only issue is what or whom we worship. We are all liturgical creatures. And if we will not have God and his truth, we will have idols and lies. That is the nature of the human constitution. That's Paul's argument. Now, there are words that he uses here like wickedness and ungodliness. What is ungodliness? Well, the Greek term is asebia, and it means discord with God. Wickedness, adikia, see the, how similar those words are, asebia, adikia? In English, they don't look the same, but they're very, very similar sounding in Greek. One has to do with the way in which we rebel against God. The second, wickedness, has to do with how we treat people. So once we're in discord with God, in discord with God, we begin to treat people in inappropriate, violent, and sinful ways. The summary of it all is that they pushed something down, the truth. They held something back, honor and thanks. They traded something in, glory. They shut something out, knowledge. And in this way, they neither loved God nor their neighbors. So this is a neat, if you will, summary of humankind in its rebellion against God. Putting something down, holding something back, trading something in, shutting something out. Redemption reverses all of this. Salvation is the great reversal of this process. We become the worshipers of God rather than idols. We become people who are thankful rather than unthankful. We become the people who honor God rather than dishonoring God. We become the people who, rather than treating our neighbors in inappropriate ways and in wicked ways, begin to honor them as image bearers of God. All right, now because of these things, the wrath of God comes. That's in verses 24 through 32. So if we go back up to verse 24, therefore God gave them over. That's a phrase that will be repeated again and again. God gave them over. Then verse 26, for this reason, God gave them over. And then in verse 28, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over. So three times in this section, we have the shape of God's wrath, which is God handing people over. The passive wrath of God, remember we talked about this, in addition to God's active wrath in which he inflicts a destructive action, we should also note God's passive judgments in which he removes restraint, permitting the full measure of what is sought to reach its logical end in terrible fullness. When God gives what we demand because we demand a substitute for him, That is a terrible moment. That's what happened to Israel in their demand for a king. And Samuel says, God, this can't happen. And God says, no, listen to them. them, They they have not rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected who? They've rejected me. So they want a king. Here's their king. Here's your Saul. Now you've got a king. See how that works out for you. Right? Right? Israel's demand for meat in the wilderness. This is a very interesting passage. Look back. This is very graphic. Look back at Psalm 106 just briefly with me for a minute. Here's another example of 
of uh, when you get what you want. <laughs> and you were wanting the wrong thing. So verse 13 of Psalm 106 They quickly forgot his works. This is talking about the people of Israel in the wilderness. Psalm 106, verse 13. They quickly forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but craved intensely in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. I want you to save the first line of verse 15 with me. So he gave them their request. We demand meat. Well, okay but sent a wasting disease among them. If you go back to the book of Numbers, you read that as soon as the meat was between their teeth, while they're eating it, disease broke out among them, which is not an argument for vegetarianism necessarily, but, or even, you know, not necessarily, but what it, what, it, what it does mean is it doesn't even mean that Israel wishes they had an FDA. What it means is that if you demand of God in insolence and rebellion... The greatest danger that you face is God giving you what you demand because you're being ungrateful and being unthankful. That's always a very dangerous place to be. So one key aspect of this is is in regard to the idea of exchange. In Psalm 106, stay there and look down at verse uh, 19, Psalm 106, uh, verse 19. And you can see this idea of exchange that's going on for them as well. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a molten image. Thus they exchanged their glory for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God their Savior who had done great things in Egypt, wonders in the land of Ham and awesome things by the Red Sea. Therefore he said that he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him, to turn away his wrath from destroying them. So there's a perfect example of the language that Paul uses in Romans chapter 1. They exchange God for an idol, and that means wrath will come to them except that a mediator stands in the gap, right? So there's a really interesting passage about Israel's own redemptive history, which in a certain sense is the whole summary of Romans 1. That the wrath of God is poured out because people exchange the glory of God for idols. And we need a savior, a mediator. What is it that God gives people over to? So let's come back to Romans chapter 1 now. Romans chapter 1 verse 24. When people become idolaters. All right, so that's the fundamental issue. Professing to be wise, they become fools. Exchanging the glory of God for, of the incorruptible God for incorruptible images. That is the fundamental issue, suppressing the truth, right, rejecting God. Then God gives them over to unbridled lusts. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to listen carefully. Does the church preach more against idols or against the sins that are mentioned in the following verses, like uh, sexual immorality? Unbridled sexual immorality is a form of God's wrath where people are simply handed over to it. But why does it happen? What's what's the actual sin behind it? Hmm? 
idols. Idols. What does Jesus spend more time talking about in the gospel? Does he spend more time talking about sexual sin or greed? Ah. Now, are you saying, Pastor, there's nothing wrong with sexual sin? It's not at all what I'm saying. But what, I'm, what I am saying is this. You tell me where our, our greatest potential idolatries lie in our culture. Well, sexual sin's a problem. But what Paul's saying here in this passage is that a lot of what, constant, what you see going as sexual sin is actually the result of a more fundamental reality. What's the fundamental reality? Idolatry. Idolatry. A false god. In other words, if a person is in fellowship with the true and living God, then these other matters begin to come into line. But if a person is not in right relationship with God, and if a culture refuses to honor God, then here are the thing. This is the way this goes. This is what happens. This is where it happens. And ancient world was full of this. If you lived in ancient Rome, I don't want to. I think we're probably safe here in this crowd. I don't want to be overly graphic, but I need to be here at this point. If you, if what was the prime, predominant sexual image of ancient Rome? It was a, it was the male phallic symbol. You could walk through Rome and see images, giant, if you if just, it, 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 you might get away with it on a filter, I don't know. You just look up Roman graffiti, okay, and see what the graffiti of Rome was. It wasn't the female figure, it was the male figure, all right? And so the rampant immorality of Rome, which was great and massive, was something that Paul says was characteristic of their culture because of these other issues, because they did not know God. We have a very easy time pointing at the world and going, look at these areas of brokenness, these violations of God's moral law. But friends, the fundamental issue when it comes to especially issues of human sexuality is the fact that people have the wrong God. They've suppressed the truth. They've exchanged the glory. When Israel beat beat that that gold into a, a golden calf, what were they doing around the golden calf? Well, they were worshiping, but how? It's a very interesting worship service. They were dancing and committing acts of immorality because idolatry always leads to immorality. But but, But a walk with God, a walk with God, faith in God, leads away from immorality. All right? So you can attack the immorality all you want, but if you want to do that, have at it. You're not going to be very successful. I don't know if you've noticed that or not. But if you call people to know the living and true God and they walk with God, then what will be the outcome in their lives, right? Then all these other matters begin to come into line. So let's look at that. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. In other words, the immorality... 
the unbridled immorality is a result of the sin of idolatry. It is idolatry which is fundamentally at issue. Okay. Then, verse 26, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. Their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Now, is, again, again, these things are the result of an idol. When these things are predominant in the culture, these are the results of idolatry. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, their gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they knew the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do them, they give hearty approval to those who do the same. Now, that giant thing that we just went through there is called a vice list. A vice list. And there are several examples of this in ancient literature. Here's Paul's vice list. Now, see, what sometimes the church is heard by the world to be doing is attacking the vice list. But the gospel does not attack the vice list. The gospel attacks the idol. The gospel presents Jesus as the living and true God who brings people into a relationship with God and shatters all the idols so that all of the vices, which are the flood of wickedness, which happens in a life and in a culture, as a result of idolatry, begin to be dissipated. So the fundamental issue, or not the vices, the fundamental issue is the idol. An entire catalog, a vice list, we say here under a depraved mind, 21 attitudes and behaviors that run unchecked through a life and a civilization that has rejected God. Filled to overflowing, it is marked finally not by sorrow and regret, but by hearty approval from those who see them and practice the same despite what they know. Paul begins his argument way back at the beginning with what people know. Verse 19, Romans 1, 19, because that which is known about God, and he concludes it with what they know. Verse 32, although they know the ordinance of God. How do they know? Where is this written? In the heart. In the heart. God's internal witness within the soul. Again, these uh, are not here the matters which bring about the wrath of God, but are rather the things which may and do constitute the wrath of God in history, culturally and personally. Paul's not exaggerating. You don't need to be a person with a Hebrew background.